0: Hello and welcome to Down with the Patriarchy. I'm Ben Richards
1: and I'm Elia J.O. He's as white and male as they come. And
0: she, well, she isn't. But together we're hoping to uncover those classical composers we don't know so well.
1: So, we are on week 11 Mm -hmm. and... In week 11, I'm not going to get excited about it. uh, We are talking about a very exciting composer who you may or may not know as, I'm cringing as I say this, Black Mozart.
0: Yeah, it's another one of those. It's another week of Black insert other composer that was around at the same time here, basically.
1: Exactly. It's another one for kind of. No, this composer doesn't have their own actual name. They're just another version of some other white, successful composer. Yeah. But shall we give him a name? Let's give him a name. Yeah. Oh, no. This is going to have to be a bit Frenchy. It is. Right. Ready? Joseph Boulogne, or Boulogne, Chevalier de Saint-Georges. You're all welcome for that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'll tell you a bit about his life in works first. And then... I think more than talking about his actual music, we're going to talk more about the problems surrounding him. Yeah. I think that would be wiser. So let's go. He was an 18th century violinist and polymath, which means very clever person. Quote me on that. And he was also a master fencer. You can't see my hands, but I just did a full on fencing thing with my hands. Oh, God. And composer (laughs) of Marie Antoinette's Court. So we'll skip back to the beginning of his life first. So, Joseph was born in the French colony of Guadeloupe in 1745. He was the illegitimate son of a 16-year-old black slave and her white plantation owner. So I don't know whether it was entirely consensual. I'm sure we've all seen 12 years a slave. Mm. But either way, he was the son. So... The plantation owner was very wealthy indeed. He was able to give his son a very good private education academically because he was quite obviously a clever boy and was also quite clearly gifted at music. So gave him a very good private musical education which was rare for black children but i suppose when you're being born into a white family like that you're given a lot of special privileges yeah so his father took him to france when he was really young and the plan was that he was going to become a brilliant fencer but at that time he was forced to enlist into the french army and became one of the first kind of cohort of black colonels in the french army which is quite impressive so we can see some excellence from a very young age and right from the start of his life. So he led 1,000 soldiers in Europe's first all black regiment, which is how he got his title of Chevalier de Saint Georges.
0: Right. Okay.
1: Yeah. I see. So I'm assuming that has something to do with horses because a cheval is a horse or cheval. Right. That was what my Duolingo taught me. So
0: some kind of equestrian regimen.
1: Yeah, something like that, I think. Mm. There we go. This is my... Gosh, I feel so French today. Anyway, (laughs) in his very limited spare time, he was busy composing. But laws in Guadeloupe meant that people of colour in orchestras who wanted to perform, that was just an absolute no, 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 no. But he was still very well known and well respected across Europe for pretty much everything he did. He was just one of those people who nowadays I would just hate because they were just multi-talented and not just multi-talented. Just uber good at everything and just, oh, nightmare. But John John Adams called him the most accomplished man in Europe in riding, shooting, fencing, dancing and music. So he was a proper good Very
0: much a Renaissance man.
1: Definitely, very much so. So, do you know the name François-Joseph Gossick?
0: Um, no.
1: No, that's fair enough. I think I only do from my first year historical musicology course. But he was an established composer and conductor in France and invited Joseph to play with him in his ensemble, the Concert des Amateurs. And although he was just a violinist sitting somewhere in the middle, He quite quickly became the concertmaster because it became very obvious that he had a lot of talent, which I found quite impressive. So his first dated compositions popped up around 1770 to 71. And I was reading a very good article about him in the New York Times, which said, While these are clearly works by a composer still searching for his voice, they already demonstrate his commitment to the new and unexplored which I like because it shows even though he was shiny and new, he had something special, Mm. which I think is very transferable across his whole life. So his three sonatas for keyboard and violin were kind of a bit of a turning point in classical music. And that's going to be a theme throughout today's podcast. Often in Baroque music in particular, you'd have a violin playing something really beautiful and then a chamber organ going plonk, plonk. Plonk, as ben will know because he's currently learning how to play the chamber organ and read figured bass yes. i event. am
0: i am indeed part of my course at the moment as i'm learning how to play the chamber organ so uh, that's going to be very very exciting but yes you do have to sort of find your way around without all the music in front of you but ultimately you are there to color and to provide a foundation for the other person to shine
1: oh as the violinist i love that i feel very shiny um, So these sonatas, as opposed to just being the kind of melody and accompaniment, there was a lot of virtuosic interaction between the keyboard and the violin. So it stopped just being a one-dimensional piece and suddenly so much more colour and interest was brought in that we hadn't really seen in classical music up to that point, which I found quite interesting. Another little, to paraphrase another bit from this same article, the New York Times wrote that it placed him in a classical style that was not even fully formed yet. So he was right at the heart of it, and it was kind of being built around him, which I really liked.
0: What year was this? Around
1: 1771. Everything was still growing and blossoming Mm. and developing. So his two violin concertos were first performed by his Concert d amateur in 1772. And they are kind of when he became really, really well-known. So this is actually what I was listening to, so I won't get into it too much yet. But there's a really gorgeous Largo second movement in his second concerto, which is just beautiful. It's so nice, and it's the kind of thing that I would quite like to play. It's, I think, got a little bit more going on than Mozart. I wouldn't dare to go there just we'll, yet so i'll save we'll, myself
0: we'll, we'll come that to that one. in a moment i feel i feel like that, is, that
1: yeah i think that so the day will come
0: up <laughs> shortly
1: i'm yeah. sure it will so returning back to Gossec, he took a position directing the concert spirituel in 1773 and invited joseph to take over basically said look I'm not going to do this anymore because a better opportunity has come up. So if you want the concert to amateur, here you go, have it. And at that point it was what it sounds like. It was kind of an amateur Mm. consort, but as soon as Joseph took over, it was recognized as being one of the best consorts in Europe and definitely the best in France. So he fully transformed it and it just became fantastic and he rose to fame and got higher and higher, climbing the ladder of classical music, until he was invited to apply to become the director at the Académie Royale de Musique, which was a big deal. It's one of the top orchestras in the country, basically. However, as I'm sure it will be absolutely no surprise to you then, all of the white musicians in the area who were applying to that same job and who would be under him were not happy they wrote to Marie Antoinette and they formed a petition saying that they would absolutely not accept any orders from a mulatto to. Wow. to so I know. And it's, it's surprising, but it's not surprising. When I was reading all about him, I was waiting for the time that he wouldn't be allowed to do something because mm. of his race, because thus far he's managed to kind of bypass it all and just slay yeah but there we go finally it happened but in 1772 he wrote two symphony concertantes which is a bit of a hybrid between a concerto grosso and the concerto Mm. as we know it so it was two violins which were interacting and having a lot of fun and then interacting with the orchestra at the same time so i think of it kind of like the bark double that Izzy and I are playing at the moment. But if instead of just playing in the bits in between, the orchestra were having fun with it too. It's a completely new genre really. And other composers around him helped to define this at the same time, but it was all very much localized in France. So in the next three years, between 1775 and 1778, he wrote eight of those. So he churned them out. And that wasn't the only thing he was doing. He was also writing his quartets and his other string ensemble stuff. He was a busy, Mm. busy bee. Now we are at 1778. And who should arrive in France but? Any guesses?
0: Um, Napoleon.
1: Napoleon. Ah.
0: Mozart. Mozart. A terrible Ah. guess, (laughs) Ben. Because he's already French. He was already there. Yeah.
1: exactly so uh, (laughs) sorry so mozart arrived in france in 1778 and for some time they were actually living in the same house which is weird. weird but i don't think they got on very well but we won't really get into that today but there is no chance in heck that Mozart spent his six months or whatever in France without coming across some of Joseph's mm. music. So yeah. I'm sure you agree. Now, when he returned to Austria, Mozart published his first ever Symphony Concertante in E-flat, right. which I think is quite interesting. Yeah. And of course, being Mozart, he got all the credit in the world. Everyone loved it. And everyone was like, he's a genius. He's done it again. But... Who invented it, not Mozart. Anyway, the Concert de Amateur ran out of funding a few years later in 1781. So Joseph took his musicians and they all formed another orchestra called Concert de la Logue Olympique, which quickly shot to the top of the orchestral yeah. charts and they started dominating the world again. However, towards the end of his life, he had to drop a lot of his music because he was really upset by the fact that he couldn't break into the opera world and he had to go back into the army during the french revolution and died soon but after
0: it, go on but
1: what a huge, what life. A huge life
0: and what also a... this concert olympique was responsible for commissioning haydn's paris the sixth yeah, paris so not only was he he lived in the same building as mozart he was one of the great exponents of the Symphony Concertante and he also then was a sort of commissioner and an enabler for Haydn um, which is really exactly. weird because of course when we've spoken about black composers on this podcast before often it's white composers being gatekeepers for them but in this instance he's so well established you know that whilst Haydn was already perfectly well established they're on an equal footing there.
1: Exactly that's what I really liked about researching joseph the whole time i wasn't going oh it's so unfair that he didn't get these opportunities because in this situation apart from the odd here and there he overcame Mm. all of it and Mm. he was allowed really because it's still the white people who Mm. were in charge they saw past his skin color and were like actually i don't really care because you are the best person for the job which is just doubly impressive There's a quote right at the end of the New York Times article saying, nevertheless, his influence in France and abroad, both as a curator and a creator, was felt long after his death. It's a remarkable fact that his music has survived two centuries of neglect caused by the systemic racism that permeates the notion of a Western canon. Neither his omission from music history textbooks of the two most used in America, he gets a brief, vague mention in one and is absent entirely from the other. Nor a lack of advocacy from programmers, publishing houses and record labels have erased mm. him completely. This is the ultimate proof that Boulogne doesn't need to be anyone's second best, let alone anyone's black echo. So, yes, I cannot wait to see the movie, but spare the awful nickname is what this article. Yeah, we, is. Don't,
0: we do not need a black Amadeus. I mean, I'm not sure we really exactly. need an Amadeus <laughs> exactly. in the first place, but...
1: I know, but hey-ho. So... That's his life. Sorry, that was a long one. He's just had... I didn't want to miss anything out because it's all so yeah, no, important. It is. I think it's such a shame that we have to call him... We don't have to, but this is the point. That we have to call him mm. the Black Mozart. So there was a film in 2003 called Le Mozart Noir, which I think is like an Amadeus type, half dramatised, yeah. half not dramatised, the kind of account of his life. And last year in 2020, a new film had just been commissioned, which is by a black director. So hopefully it might be a bit less, I don't want to say whitewashed, but I think they'll get the controversies out the way. And I think it won't be called something stupid Mm. like Black Mozart. It will be probably called De Chevalier or something like that. So yes, I have no idea when it's coming out, but I can't wait to see it because I'm curious as to what they're going to do to bust down the miss but anyway listening what did you um, listen to
0: um, Ben? I listened to one of his violin concertos in D major or A major I can't remember there's a reason why I can't remember so the thing is right this is this is this is the <laughs> thing well you know last week we were talking to Matthew about you know the composers we don't like and all the rest of it Mozart kind of came up in all mm. of our sections so yeah part of my issue with Chevalier de Saint George. It's not really his fault. It's that, unfortunately, this great polymath is writing in what I consider to be the most dull, uninteresting, you know, creative less moment in music history. It is the musical equivalent of cucumber sandwiches with no crusts on. It is sort of light, sort of just like, oh, just. just it just happens and it's what everybody thinks of when they think of classical music and it makes me feel really bad because i'm like honestly you just need to not listen to it because there's an entire world of music out there which you know the the narrative that is peddled is that beethoven brings us out of it and in all fairness like he does to a certain extent and we move into the romantic period and things happen then and i feel like you go from Bach and Handel who you know in general I, I adore and I find their music terribly terribly exciting and then you move through this sort of phase in the sort of mid to late 1700s where I just feel like as if music went aesthetically much more simpler they decided they didn't decide but that's how it, it evolved in that way it was
1: simplicity
0: and elegance yeah, and, and the in, balance and then and in, you know but in, I suppose you know, mid to late 20th century, we ended up with the emergence of minimalism. This era of, mm. is kind of almost the original minimalism in a way.
1: It's just going yeah. everything right back to the bare essentials and then Beethoven went. But,
0: but it's, oh, just, it's just, it's I mean, I, I haven't really got a great deal to say about his music if I'm being brutally honest, because I think for me, like as a choral singer, I find it very hard to listen to classical music unless there's any singers. And he didn't write any masses as far as I can tell and there's not a huge amount mm-hmm. of I think I listened to one song which was quite nice I can't quite remember what it was called I think it was in French but just on the whole like if this is your bag if you like Mozart if you like the Mozart symphonies and you like all of Mozart stuff then you will probably listen to this and you'll you won't even know it. the difference, and you'll be happy so exactly if this is your bag then great and I think that's why you're so right to say that today is not really so much about like, oh, my God, this music is amazing. We need to listen to this person right now. It's actually more about him and the issues around him. And yeah. Exactly.
1: Um, so I don't like the balance and the elegance. That's not what I no. listen to classical music for. So I'm completely with you. I'm there to be moved and to, I don't know, to, to feel something. I don't feel anything no. really from it. And I'm a violinist and listening to his concertos, I don't even feel no. particularly moved. And mm. I, I love it because for me, it's like Mozart, better than Mozart in a lot of cases, more innovative mm. than Mozart in a lot of cases. But I wouldn't play Mozart. I that I avoid it with everything I can, although I feel like my teacher is going to give me some Mozart soon. So I might ask instead. Yeah. this instead, but I wouldn't listen to it. I would not sit down and listen to it, but that does not change the fact that just because I don't like this period of music, that he was a brilliant composer for that genre, for that time, and for that color,
0: yeah,
1: effectively. So, because he was the son of a white slave owner, he had a lot of privilege. I think had he have more like Samuel Corridge Taylor, had he have not been born into that, I don't know if he would have succeeded at all he'd never had a violin
0: like there's a reason why he became what he became and it's because of what we can only assume to be an act of chauvinistic high male misogyny
1: Hmm. in
0: the abuse of slavery but actually without wishing to give his father any kind of credit there was the opportunity for him to be entirely disowned and he wasn't. And so he yeah, was supported. That, and yeah. so there is that element of the fact that there were probably so many bastard children of slave owners and their slaves that wouldn't have had the support, that would have been disowned by their father because they were ashamed of them and because, or because they were ashamed of themselves or whatever it was. They couldn't believe yeah, they'd done they it. And so, we're, done you know, we're, we're, we're blessed with this man's music and his life partly through the fact that he was supported. So in all fairness, that does deserve to be made a point of. But I mean, you know, it's one of those things where we still live in a world where being born black puts you often at a socioeconomic disadvantage Mm -hmm. in terms of class divides as well. But the opportunity to become a successful black composer today on your own merit is far greater than it was back then.
1: Oh, exactly. I mean, if I was in this position um, 200 years ago, if I was a violinist who'd been a person of colour... And a woman as well. Let's not forget that there is not a chance I'd be leading Royal Philharmonic yeah, yeah. Orchestra. You know, it's only because of his circumstances of having a wonderful father yeah. that he was given that platform. Not wonderful father, yeah. but but then a at the same time, father. like Sorry.
0: you know, the the other thing is to be quite clear about it, is that he was obviously an incredibly talented human being. So many things, oh, and sure. and that makes you think. Well, I don't know whether or not his father could have known that when he put him through, where he moved him into France yeah. from Guadeloupe. He probably couldn't he have know. necessarily known that. But the fact that he was this extraordinary individual who was, you know, a bit of a legend, you know, a war leader. He was a champion fencer, you know, an artist. What a collection of, of skills to have. And It's very, it's just oh, no. it's very like <laughs> swashbuckling. I can imagine that, you know, that he was quite the dashing chap in his velvet and, and his wig and, and all of that kind of stuff. It's it's a wonderful wonderful <laughs> image and a wonderful story in a not a very modern story and not a not a necessarily relatable story. But actually, I think what's quite interesting about it is how he does interact with the white world of music that we are aware of. Haydn sure. and Mozart, you know, he's very much part of that. He doesn't exist in a different country to them. Well, he does exist in a different country to them. He he lives in Paris rather than living in in Germany or Austria. But he, but
1: it's a, yeah. the same kind of culture and and you know
0: and Haydn. Obviously, we know that Haydn wrote Paris symphonies, they so wrote London symphonies. So it's that European mm. that European tradition. And I think also it's a great moment to sort of remark upon France's uh, remarkable multicultural heritage. You know, France is, is remarkably diverse. And I remember reading about... Oh, absolutely. This tangent, I remember reading about why the French football team is, I think, a majority POC. And yeah. it's because part of it is a natural consequence of colonization obviously it's important to remember that the french were were um colonized over the world not quite to the extent of the british but you know in a large extent and obviously that's still evident in places like Mm. like guadeloupe but the fact that france and paris is such a diverse city often unfortunately it does mean that people of color live on the outskirts of the city in very poor areas and that there is a distinct social divide but actually it's a lot of france's greatest assets culturally in sporting ways and others have had that mixed racial heritage and obviously in mm. france has a difficult relationship with race and with religion and with all these different things um, which is probably too deep to go into here um like many countries do but it's a particularly prominent issue in france in the same way that we have our issues with it in britain but it's great mm. that there is a poster boy for what, exactly. what can be achieved
1: but then it's also difficult because that poster boy's name, like yeah. even on the Classic FM website, sorry, I do want to work for Classic FM, but not if they're going to keep saying things like Black Mozart in capital yeah. letters at the top of their articles. I I think that's the biggest problem I have is completely ignoring the yeah. period of music that he was writing in, is that we're unable to separate his talent from yeah. his colour. And he he could just be, which is obviously the theme of this podcast, but He could just be a really brilliant composer. Like, Bright Sheng is, in his own words, 100% American and 100% Chinese. And obviously, Joseph Boulogne is no longer here to kind of defend himself. But The Independent Mm. wrote about him that his title, being dubbed as the Black Mozart, is presumably intended as a compliment. But this erasure of Boulogne's name not only subjugates him to an arbitrary white standard but also diminishes his truly unique place yeah. in western classical I, music history instead of giving him his own slot we're just going he's Mozart well the thing is I, I, can't, I, I
0: obviously because cool. his name is French there are times I couldn't remember what his name was and so in order to find out his name I'd have to search black Mozart in YouTube and that's that's not mm. okay
1: no, you no, know exactly. and I think that i had to the, do the same thing we
0: wouldn't have to do that if the moniker Black Mozart didn't exist. So, you know, exactly. so it's important. Yes,
1: yes. I think it, it was only once, he was only once called that. Yeah. It only takes one time, one person yeah. to say that before it sticks. It takes someone going, oh, have you seen that guy? He's like Mozart, but black. And then the next guy's like, oh, I was reading this thing about Black Mozart. And it just goes on and on. Yeah. And that's how you perpetuate something like that. And I think it's really difficult, especially when there's a 20-something-year-old film yeah. called Le Mozart Noir. He's never going to be able to break out of so, that. So, yeah,
0: normalise it. Say his name. His name is Joseph Boulong And he is exactly. an actual human being and very much a, an impressive person, an impressive guy, and worthy of reading about and listening to, if that's your thing, and appreciating him and what he, um, what he did.
1: And if we were to make a Western classical music canon of just yeah. classical era music.
0: I also I'd think 100% that on, purely in. on the basis that, that he was involved in the creation of music that is in the canon already. Maybe that's something we should look at as we go through this podcast is looking at the enablers of the canon, the people that have allowed mm. the music that has become the canon to be, become what it is, and actually to give them more of a voice in a way because actually it's important to remember that this is not just the work of one individual it's always the work of multiple people
1: exactly. um yeah
0: yeah so i was gonna say the last black composer that we talked about on this podcast was samuel coleridge taylor <laughs> well
1: do i know what you're about so to say it's
0: very very exciting as we all know it's classic fm hall of fame week and
1: Everyone knows the Hall of Fame. We, all, we, all, know, Fame we all know who rabbit. won. It was
0: Lark Ascending, <laughs> followed by Rap 2. We know that happens every year, blah, blah, uh, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but uh, for the first time uh, in history, at number 293, Samuel Coleridge-Taylor's piano arrangement of Deep River has made it into the Hall of Fame. Woo! So props to Samuel Coleridge-Taylor. Props applause. to Classic FM, who have obviously been playing his music more and exposing it to, to a wider sure. audience
1: maybe they've been listening yeah. to our podcast yeah and well done to our audience thank you yes. listeners because clearly just the general public are actually, actually obviously i think we on... should take
0: all of the credit for I this
1: that I'm
0: oh i don't all mean the, i don't mean all the,
1: mean, all the, credit. So mean all the people that.
0: that voted for samuel corley <laughs> taylor obviously all of them have been listening to the podcast so <laughs> to the british the people we say thank you
1: exactly no, no. i actually mean listeners of classic fm that made me so happy and it made me so angry that The Lark sending won again because everyone knows it's a good piece of music now. Yeah. Just give it up. I mean, movies don't win Oscars over over again 11 years running. I think it's going to be really for hard for that top so 10, just...
0: those top 10 works to move a great deal. But I think, to be honest, I, I think ultimately what's but... important about the whole Hall of Fame is that it in itself becomes more diverse. Like, I'm never going to expect a piece by a female composer or a POC composer at the top of that list because because it's a popularity con-
1: exactly. contest
0: and ultimately when when something is so entrenched in the same way that there might be the most amazing black painters and artists out there but people will probably still say that their favorite painting is van Gogh's sunflowers or whatever right it's so ingrained in, exactly. in us that in a popularity concert these people are going to win but i think yeah this is and, such and, a good Fame becomes littered with female composers and black composers and composers of asian origin and queer composers and maybe more modern composers and that the only modern composers that really seem to exist on this list are either minimalists or film composers, not to take anything away from either of those groups, but actually the Mm. I suppose, in many ways, the safer end of contemporary music in terms of accessibility to a wider audience, which is great. But at the same time it means that people are kind of they're still sitting in their comfy zone, aren't they?
1: They're so stuck in their bubble. And I think if you do listen to this podcast and you can tell one person about a composer you've heard on this podcast that you quite like the sound of, then maybe they'll tell one person just keep going on like that and that's how we get people like samuel corridge taylor into the hall of fame albeit at 293 mm-hmm. out of 300 mm-hmm. it's he's in there and maybe because he'll start being played by classic fm now we'll see more of him arriving and then before we know it
0: yeah
1: we'll be somewhere near the top that's the plan oh we didn't so this say is a tricky right one, one left, because right.
0: musically this is my first swipe left of this podcast
1: i agree Him as a person, huge swipe right. His entire life, his career, his availability to just smash through things, absolutely swipe right. But music, I'm giving it a left. Sorry, yeah. But I still like it. It's still
0: worth listening. Even even if you just go, okay, well, I know what it is now, and I know who this guy is. Important thing about the left and the right thing is it's not a value judgment on whether it's any good. It's a value judgment on whether we like it it's just yeah, a very exactly. subjective it's thing just and opinion. actually you know if it was entirely on does it display a certain level of proficiency you go well, yes obviously it does do i like it no well, yeah exactly. definitely so there awesome. we go next week we have another guest on.
1: another week
0: we do we um, do so stay stay tuned it's our first um soviet female composer next week so we're going to be joined by our old and dear friend Mr Benra Howard for a talk about one of his favourite female Soviet composers so watch this space
1: yeah and go and head to our Instagram give us a follow give us a DM send us a voice note and we'll play it on the podcast guaranteed so thank you for listening and we will see you yep. with Benra Howard week, next week I Bye.